This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, welcome to the Jason and the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and thanks for joining us. We're going to have uh, some a good, fun discussion today. We're going to uh, give some thoughts on the news, highlight the stupid, because there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere, and we got a couple candidates for you. And then we're going to phone a friend, and uh, honored and privileged to be able to get uh, Bill McGurn to join us. You've seen him on Fox News. He was the chief uh, speechwriter for a spell there uh, for President George W. Bush. He was also the uh, speechwriter for Mr. Murdoch, who is uh, who's uh, the principal, obviously here, and the founder of of uh, Fox News. Um, but he's got a fascinating background, and you know, he's just one of those happy warriors, happy people that when you do bump into him and see him, he's got a smile on his face, and and one of the great. Uh, writing talents that's uh, out there. Not everybody can do speech writing um, and uh, the written word the way he does. And I think it'll be a very interesting discussion. So, but let's kick kick things off with a a little bit about the news. Uh, I got four things that I want to kind of share with you. First is about oil prices. Um, Oil prices are starting to go back up. Um, The White House is scrambling to come up with the word track on this because... As Peter Ducey last week uh, asked the White House spokesperson, so the, the president seems to be taking credit when the price gas the price of gas goes down, but is he also responsible when it goes up? Now, usually the White House comes out quickly and says, "Oh, it's Putin's fault and the Putin war and all this," but the moment it drips, you know, comes down a penny or two, guess what? The White House is out there taking credit for. Thank goodness that uh, that the president did this, that, or the other, but. I think we're going to see a more of a rapid rise in the price of fuel, unfortunately. Um, and it's because of a couple things. One is the policies that were put in place by the White House really within the first week of this administration, uh, shutting down Anwar, getting rid of pipelines, uh, p- pushing back on on the uh, the permitting process. They don't. They never did want fossil fuels, uh, natural gas, uh, nuclear, any of these things. Nuclear is about the cleanest energy out there, and they pretty much shut down that production and movement as well. Um, the president uh, Biden went over to Saudi Arabia and almost embarrassingly tried to ask for more production. But with OPEC uh, last week uh, saying that they were going to produce two million barrels less per day. Um, and you combine that with a really bad policy that uh, Biden had in place. He said he was going to, in order to drive down the price, start releasing our strategic petroleum reserve. Now, ladies, gentlemen, the reason we have a strategic petroleum reserve is to deal with it in terms of war and natural disasters and to deal with it so that if, imagine if there was a natural disaster somewhere else in the world, like maybe Saudi Arabia or one of these big producers, we could be self-sufficient for a spell, a time, for months or a couple of years 
depending on how much we were using at a time, it's not a political tool. It was there as a strategic petroleum reserve. It's got a great name, not a political tool to try to drive down the price of gasoline. Well, that had a minor effect for a short period of time, but guess what? Now that they've helped drain that strategic petroleum reserve, there's not a lot of reserve that you can go out there and suddenly put out into the marketplace to drive down the overall cost. So you do that, OPEC producing less, guess what? Price goes up. And that, unfortunately, is going to be what's happening. Uh, next thing in the news is the national debt. It was announced last week that uh, the national debt is north of $31 trillion. Now, the White House used to be able to say, oh, but we're reducing the deficit, which is such a bunch of hogwash, particularly now because Biden erroneously, I think, and and despite the law, has gone out there and said, oh, well, hey, you know what we're going to do is um, we're going to have this handout, this free bailout for anybody who went to college and your, your student loans. Well, that is hundreds of billions of dollars wiped out any talking point that they had about reducing the deficit. Now the debt is north of $31 trillion. We're paying something and it fluctuates because of interest rates around 2 billion dollars a day just in interest on that national debt. Um, And keep in mind how much money that is. If you spent a million dollars a day, every day, it would take you almost 3,000 years to get to $1 trillion. And now we're $31 trillion in debt. Now next year, the makeup of Congress may be very different. And we're going to have to have a discussion in this country about the debt limit. And I think that is an opportunity to take pause as a nation. People say, oh, well, we can't shut down the government. Well, we got to have some point where we actually have a discussion. And I do hope that that discussion leads to a discussion and a movement to deal with the national debt. I happen to think, I believe in a balanced budget amendment. I think Congress should pass this so that it goes to the states. And if two-thirds of the states agree that we need to have a balanced budget, then that's the way we go. But I think it's irresponsible to not have that vote and not allow the states uh, in order to uh, have a, a vote in a say through their state legislatures, legislators, as to whether or not we're going to actually balance the books in this country. It's killing us, absolutely destroying the nation. All right, uh, third thing, I found it interesting. You can go to ballotpedia.com uh, and look this up. This is where I see some of this information. It's fascinating that here we go into the waning days of the 2022 election, and Joe Biden is really pretty absent out there on the campaign trail. Not many people want to be seen with him. You know, he goes to Georgia. Stacey Abrams doesn't want anything to do with him. He goes to Ohio. Tim Ryan, running as a Democrat in Ohio, doesn't want to see him. Uh, Arizona, will he go to Arizona? I don't know. But thus far, he has shunned the presence of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, by the way. Did you know that Donald Trump has done more than 450 endorsements in the 2022 cycle? 92% of the people in the primaries uh, that he endorsed won. An amazing statistic. If you look at Biden and Harris, I don't think uh, Kamala Harris has done any um, endorsements. But if you look back in the previous years, oh, yeah, she did this regularly. This is not like a principle of hers. Hey, I don't endorse anybody. It's just nobody wants to get her endorsement. If you look at what Joe Biden's done, 
I think he has less than 10. Less than 10 people want the president of the United States to endorse him. And these are Democrats. All right, number four, I got to move on to Twitter. Who knows? By the time this podcast comes out, we will be back forth all over the place. But the mere mention that Elon Musk may actually complete the transaction to purchase Twitter, I love it. Because you know what? Twitter has become an important social media tool, but the suppression that happens at Twitter and Facebook and others of conservative viewpoints, I'm here to tell you personally, it is real. And if you're going to have somebody in there that can take a very popular social media tool and get rid of the censorship and get rid of the um, irresponsible and politically motivated suppression, more power to you. I think Elon Musk is one of the great uh, human stories of our generation. The impact that he's made on the world is just unbelievable. There's a reason why he's the richest person in the world. And more power to him if he can take over Twitter and fix it. All right, now it's time to bring on the stupid because, you know, as we say, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. All right, got to go back to immigration. Uh, New York Mayor Adams, um, he criticized the far left for doing nothing on immigration, and he is right. You compare that to Henry Cuellar, who's a Democrat, who I served with in the Congress, He's telling uh, people, and he said this for a long time, the White House, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, policymakers of the White House, they will not return his call imploring people. Now, Henry Cuellar is a Democrat. His district is on the border between Texas and Mexico, and he wants to talk and show the Democrats what's going on at the border, and they won't even return his call. So I I just can't believe that these people are taking on these types of positions when we've had millions of people flowing over the border uh, unimpeded. And and this is so wrong. There's so much to this immigration story, and I, I know you know about it. All right, the second thing for bringing on the stupid are the lack of debates. You have uh, some key, key races out there where there's very few debates or or debates that are very late in the system. Uh, Lee Zeldin, running for governor of New York. Uh, pretty close and tight race for a Republican coming in there. Kathy Hochul, uh, the current Democrat governor of New York, who's never had to go through this type of election. Remember, she was, she was the uh, lieutenant governor before the governor had to step down. She should be subject to a debate. How the New York Times and a lot of these liberal-leaning media outlets aren't just pounding on the door saying, you have got the debate, you've got to answer these questions. Unbelievable that they get away with that stuff. And in uh, Pennsylvania, yeah, there should be more than one debate. There should be a couple of debates. And you know what? There should be a debate or two or three in Arizona. Again, late in the process, look at your own races there should be public debates. These are key to the process, and they shouldn't happen just a day or two before the actual election happens. Voting is opened up. Guess what, folks? Um, there probably should be a debate. That is bringing on the stupid. All right, now we have the pleasure of calling Bill McGurn. Bill is was the chief uh, speechwriter for part of the George W. Bush administration. He worked for Mr. Murdoch doing speech writing there, but he has a, 
a long storied history, and I hope to hear more of that about his journalism, his his uh, being a newspaper man, and uh, he's just one of those happy warriors. who's seen him a lot on Fox, so looking forward to this discussion. Let's give a call to Bill McGirt. Hello. Hey, Bill, Jason Jaffetz. How you doing? Hey, thanks for letting me uh, interrupt your day here, and but thanks for joining us on the Jason in the House podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Looking forward to it. Hey, look, I really appreciate you coming on. First of all, I've had a chance to bump into you along the way at Fox. You're just one of the nicest guys out there. Um, but you've got no, this thanks. fascinating background. you got this skill set that not many people have, and... It's a really, really hard one, and I, I want to learn a little bit more about it. I want to hear more about life and growing up and how you got in that position because to be able to be uh, a writer uh, and to have the president of the United States uh, speak what you write, that is a really, really interesting right. job. It is. I didn't set out to be a speechwriter, and you know what's interesting is that since that happened, since I went to work for President Bush, uh, that seems to be how I'm defined. Um, where I think of myself, I've spent, you know, now it's almost 40 years in the journalism business. So I think of myself as a newspaper man, but I recognize to a lot of people I'm a speechwriter. And that was only for a very brief period of about three years. Hey, Bill, you know, there is a whole generation growing up. They don't even know what a newspaper is. <laughs> Isn't that kind of weird? Isn't that sort of scary? Like the well. kid, I saw this comedian. I, I saw this comedian, I, and I don't want to get us off track here, but I thought it was pretty funny. And I can't remember the guy's name. I'm trying to give him some credit, but I can't remember his name. And he said, "Yeah, you know, the poor newspaper, because boy, if it had been invented second as opposed to first, it would have been the greatest thing. Imagine somebody comes along and says, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take all the things that are happening in the world, everything on the internet, we're going to synthesize it down, and we're going to print it on a piece of paper. We're going to deliver it to you before you wake up. You can hold it and just read the best about news and sports and everything. And I and I thought, that is so funny. It's so true that in today's world, the newspapers just kind of fading away, and they're trying to find their place in this new rapid-fire uh, you know, speak and then think about it later type of world that we're living in. Yeah. And then when you're done reading the newspaper, it had the added virtue of you could use it to line your birdcage <laughs> right. um, right. or put it down for your pets in some area. You got a um, new puppy, you could just like put the newspaper protect, down. Right. <laughs> um, I'm more positive about the outlook for papers. Look, the paper part is disappearing. I mean, I myself seldom read um, the physical paper. And I do a lot of reading on my iPhone. That's not because I've chosen the iPhone. It's because it's more convenient. You know, I can read it in the waiting room at the doctor. I can read it on the train when I'm commuting. I can read it all sorts of places. So um, I, I, I seldom actually sit down and read the newsprint even though I like it when I do, you know, occasionally I buy a paper, go in for a cup of coffee somewhere and spread it out. And I, I, I would say you miss a few things when it's on paper, you miss, um, you know, the level of importance that you can tell on the layout of a page, you know, whether it's on top, 
what the illustrations are on the um, web in an electronic form. It's a lot more democratic. You know, you can't even tell the um, length of the piece at first glance. So, um, so you do miss something, but there are tremendous uh, opportunities. The pa- newspapers are far more timely than they've ever been before. And, uh, you know, I think the Wall Street Journal is uh, dedicated to belief that the uh, greatest days are still ahead. Yeah, but, you know, th- is there something lost, though? Because it seems like these reporters, they knew they had a deadline, kind of whatever it was, midnight or 1 a.m. or 11 p.m., whatever their, the newspaper uh, deadline was. And they could continue to churn on a story as opposed to what's happening now, which is first to market, you better get it out quick. And sometimes you move too quickly. And yet the story is still percolating for another, I don't know, six or eight hours. Imagine all the additional interviews and the comments and the the time to pause and think it through. Do we Have we lost something there? Um, maybe, but I think that was always the case. You know, one of the things people used to say about paper is, you know, the person reading it thinks, you know, all these, it's a finished product, you know, buffed, um, and shined to perfection. And that was true even then, you know, you couldn't reach some people by, um, deadline time, or they called back at 8 PM and the paper had already gone to bed, um, you know, now you could fit those things in and update as needed. So I'm not sure we've we've missed that so much, but it's, it's definitely changing. You know, it's giving an avenue for uh, content, a lot of content on there. You know, our, our owner, Rupert Murdoch, always says we're in the content business. You know, we're um, sorting things out. And um, I think people are learning, for example, from the blogs that a newspaper is something else. You know, it has a lot of editors. They're not perfect, but it goes through a lot of hands before it gets printed. And a lot of blogs, you know, I I don't know about you, but sometimes I read a story and I click on to see if there's other information. And what I see is the same version of the story uh, picked up elsewhere. And so often it comes down to one associated press story or something um and it looks like it's reported by a lot of people but it's really just one source so um i don't know we i think the challenges of being timely and accurate are largely the same the technology has made it easier to be timely i don't know that it's made easier to be accurate um, let me compare it to when I worked at the White House. You know, uh, in in the newspaper business, when I write something, I'm really on my own until the editor looks at it. And uh, I have to do my own research and so forth, which I like because, you know, when you do your own research, you read the background and the context. Right, you don't right. just take something, you know, if you had an assistant, well, they you can, do this. I'm, I, I I don't know that everybody's doing the kind of background. Yeah, that but if you do it by to. yourself, you can't rely. Like, for example, if um, a related uh, issue is plagiarism, um, you know, a lot of famous authors have been caught plagiarizing stuff for their history books, right? 
I don't think they really were deliberately plagiarizing. What they had is a lot of these guys, especially the well-known ones, they have an army of research assistants and the research assistants find the stuff and they might not say it's in quotes. And so they take it, not realizing it's just lifted word for word. And I think they'd rather say, oh, I made a mistake. Um, I didn't give sufficient credit than to um, than to say, well, I didn't really write this. This is my right, right, right. 21-year-old grad student <laughs> doing the work. So in journalism, we largely do our own stuff. Now, I compare that with the White House when you have a staff of fact-checkers, researchers, and, you know, it was kind of funny. You could, you could like, write a speech. First, I'd write a speech, and I'd ask them to find me the specific number, like, you know, what's a GDP of uh, California or something. They can do that. Then after a while, it can get fun. If you write a sentence, the um, United States Army um, stationed in Iraq consumed blank uh, pounds of bananas in <laughs> the first half of 2006. Okay. And then you realize there's someone in the government that's responsible for knowing how many bananas they consume. <laughs> and you get back questions. Does that count green bananas? Yeah. <laughs> um, does that count bananas made into baked into other things like banana bread? Um, and so there's vast information. And um, I never got, you know, quite used to that having so many people, you know, giving you information. I, I still kind of preferred to ferret it out myself so I could, read the background and so forth. But that was one different. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Bill McGurn right after this. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. All right, so I want to hear a lot about uh, your time in the White House, working with the president, coming up with those words. But I think in order to kind of really appreciate and know that, let's let's go back to little Bill or Billy or whatever. I don't know what they called you when you were a little kid, but tell us about <laughs> in, growing up. In my up family, with, it was Billy. It, okay, so little Billy. I don't know, brothers, sisters, where'd you grow up? Tell us about, yeah, tell us about that experience. I was the oldest of six. Oh, wow. I was the oldest of six. I don't think I was ever little, Billy, um, uh, due to my size. <laughs> but I was the oldest of six. My dad was an FBI agent. Uh, oh, really? And a, a Marine before that. So I was actually born in Camp Pendleton. He was a Brooklyn guy, like my mom, uh, from Flatbush. And eventually they settled in New Jersey, where I grew up. Now, they were also charter subscribers uh, to National Review you know, from the mm, beginning. Yeah. So I, sometime in high school, I looked at National Review and I started reading it. So I was always pretty conservative um, when I went to high school and to college. Um, and then I got a job with the American Spectator. And uh, from there, moved to the Wall Street Journal overseas, first in Europe for three years, uh, then in Hong Kong. What were you I writing moved, about at that time? It was all the politics. Remember, um, 
NATO was a big thing. The the um it was right before the bust up of the Berlin Wall. So there was a lot of stuff going on. Solidarity. I went into Poland and met Lech Walesa, hmm. I think when he's under house arrest. So there was a lot of ferment. Um and uh, I left just before the Berlin Wall came down. I was in Asia for that in Hong Kong. I, I thought I'd go there for the experience, um, spend two years, something. I spent two years or two three years with the um, Asian Journal. Then I went back to Washington, worked for Bill Buckley at Nash Review. And then I had an offer to go back to Hong Kong for something called the Far Eastern Economic Review. Dow Jones owned it. It was kind of like an economist for Asia. And uh, I spent another six years there. When I went back to Hong Kong, I was married. So uh, it was a very different experience. The first time in Hong Kong, I just was single. I used all my free time to travel. I went to Afghanistan during the first war with the Mujahideen. Um, The second time I was married. So I got to know a lot of local people. Uh, who became like family to us. And so uh, the second time was, I would say, almost a little better because I made real lasting friendships, like with Jimmy Lai, the newspaper publisher who's in jail now, about to go on trial Hmm. for collusion with foreign forces. So, again, going back just a little bit, when when did you figure out that, you know, writing was something that you could do and that, you excelled out and that you liked, I mean, was that, how did, what was the spark that said, Ooh, I'm pretty good at this. Well, um, I always liked writing and, um, in fifth grade, um, at a Catholic, uh, parochial school, an all boys class, um, someone, um, how do I put this delicately? Um, someone had an accident mm. in the classroom. Yes. And, uh, one of my classmates, a kid named David Fry, came up to me and said, we should have a newspaper. So he called the newspaper the 5B Blab. And uh, it was all about that accident. It only had one issue. And it was handwritten. <laughs> I think we had three copies because it took a long time to, to, copy um, <laughs> to copy it down. So that was my first foray into newspaper writing. And I wrote for the high school paper and my college paper. So I always wanted to do that. But I will say when I got to the uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, my boss was Seth Lipsky, who um, was for at the Journal for many, many years. And um, now he runs the New York Sun in, in New York. Uh, Seth really taught me how to report that you don't just write opinions, you know, you have to back them up, uh, reporting, calling people, all sorts of things. And that's when I think really learned the craft of journalism. And he sent me all over the world, um, Malta, um, Lebanon, and so forth, Israel, to write all these stories. So um, that's where I first started really getting serious about the business of uh a journalism. Hey, and, and I have to say, I, I don't like the word journalism. One thing Seth taught me is never say journalist, say newspaper man. Huh. So I always feel like I'm betraying him when I say journalist or something. What, what, um, what, what, it, what was the lesson there? What was the, uh, what's the difference? The difference is a newspaper man is kind of gritty and it's about reporting 
And um, journalism is kind of a, a fancy word with jur- journalism schools and right. kind of pretending that it's a profession like law or or um, medicine, which is not, you know, you don't need any degree to be a journalist, much less a good journalist. You know, it's open to all. So that has stuck with me through all these years. You know, I, um, I think I'm with him on that. I think I would, uh, I, it does, you're right. There's a grittiness to a, a scrappy, somebody who's out there um, living it, breathing it, out on the streets, talking to people, as opposed to, Oh, I'm going to write in my journal tonight, and right, and also it's you know less pretentious, you know. Yeah, than, no, I told. Uh, okay, I'm than, I'm with you. Sold me on that one. Right. I, I'm buying that. But what point, Bill? You know, it's one thing to be a newspaper man and to be and to write all this, but taking that and then crafting that and turning that and spinning that, if you will, or or tweaking it. I don't know what the right word is. Help me with this. To be a speechwriter, when did that happen? Because you're right. Well, I mean, you'll be known for your time at the White House probably more than anything else. Yeah, um, it, that happened by accident, you know. And a lot of um, times when I meet um, kids getting starting out, they want they say, "I want to do what you do," and I said, "That's a mistake yeah. because I didn't aim for what I'm doing." I, you know, I took advantage of opportunities when they arise and the opportunities for others will be different than the ones for me. In terms of working at the White House, I was a draftee. I was not a volunteer. Um, I was working at the journal, uh, very, very happy. And I got a call. Uh, first of all, to preface this, when um, George Bush was first inaugurated, I had a call from uh, Mike Gerson and I went down and had breakfast with him and he asked me if I wanted to be a speechwriter. Now, I had just returned with my wife and children from uh, Hong Kong. Uh, you know, my kids are adopted from China. So we we were really committed to our new life, our home in New Jersey uh, for the kids. Mm hmm. And I had never had a desire to work for the government, so I declined. But then I, I left the journal and actually went to write go write speeches for Rupert Murdoch, uh, largely for financial reason, for my family. And uh, just as I got there, they called me up again and said the president would still like you to join a speechwriting department, this time as chief speechwriter. And um, I didn't want to go. It was a, a huge cut in salary by about a third. And uh, the reason I went is that um, uh, we were at war. That, you know, I just don't think I was raised, you know, a wartime president asked for your services. I, I think you have to have a really good reason to say no. And Although there were real sacrifices for my family for that decision, they'd be disrupted again. They were nothing compared to the sacrifices of the um, men and women who were serving uh, over in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I went and I, I had, I won't say it was great time. Like I look at it, I think like men look at their time in the army, they're glad they did it. 
not sure they would do it again. Right. Uh, I lo- I loved the people I met. I met some first rate people. The president was uh, great to work with. He went the extra mile for my family. You know, my girls all love him. Um, so it was a great experience. And actually, it taught me a lot of useful things for my job about how the government works or does not work. So, I, you know, you learn something from everything you do. That's another thing I tell the young journalists. If you make a mistake somewhere and leave a job and, and take a different job and it doesn't work out, don't spend your time looking back. Um, look forward, say, okay, what do I want to do next? Every job has some lessons. If you learn you don't like something, that's a good lesson. So um, I don't think any experience is wasted, no matter what it was. And I don't think um, people looking for a career in the news business should um, worry about mistakes, you know, and every job has certain advantages and disadvantages. Sure. And so if you if you're find yourself stuck in one, say, well, what are the few advantages this job offers me and take advantage of them until you find a new job. Let's go back to, to Rupert Murdoch for a second. Um, you know, he's uh, very grateful. I've had a chance to interact with him a bit uh, here at, at Fox um, and to be a, a, a contributor here at, at Fox, uh, Fox news. But what, what did Rupert Murdoch see in you? I mean, look, He's been in the newspaper business and the news business for a right. long time. He sees a lot of people and reads a lot of things. Had you written speeches before? Was no, I how hadn't. Did, how did he pick um, you out of the out of the yeah, sea of people he can get to? I don't think he saw anything in me. He was relying on Peter Robinson. You might know him. He's a former Reagan speechwriter. Yep. He wrote tear down this wall, that speech and everything. And Peter's a good friend. And so when Rupert was looking for a speechwriter, he was planning to um, talk a lot about education, which he cares about a lot in speeches. Um, Peter recommended me. So I was hired on that basis. And I, I learned an incredible amount from Rupert, who, by the way, loves newspapers. You know, Rupert's probably most associated with Fox, but Rupert really has given the journal new life and um, he loves newspapers. Um, yeah, yeah. At the heart, he's a newspaper man. So um, there are a lot of people that are newspapermen, but they can't actually write for the spoken word um right what what's different from you know writing something for whatever journal you're writing for or for the for the for you know whatever you're writing and actually turning it into a good compelling speech because a george w bush has a different cadence he has a different inflection yes. points he has how, how do you how do you look at that i mean writing for a bill clinton as opposed to a and i'm not talking about the content right um but how, how do you do that? How do you approach that? That is an excellent question. And too many people don't appreciate that. But there is a fundamental difference between the written word and the spoken word. Um, and people that are good at one often are not good at the other. 
uh, because again, it takes very different skills. So take me, for example, for the journal, my columns are 800 words. So I'm trying to cram a lot of stuff, information in my column as much as I can. And I have that limit. And someone reading it can read like two paragraphs and then, you know, their their wife or husband asks them if they want another coffee and they get <laughs> distracted. Then they can come back and finish it. All sorts of things that that's not the way a speech works. And President Bush used to emphasize this. He took a course called American Oratory Yale and uh, basically the lesson in that course in a structured speech is to tell people what you're going to say, have an introduction, then kind of make your three points about it, then your peroration and conclusion. And, uh, you know, with the three points, like if, if you're giving a speech on, um, say, Ukraine today, you know, if you're giving a speech on helping Ukraine in its war against Russia, you would say the first way we help Ukraine in this fight against Russia is to support them at the uh, UN. Then you explain that. Then you go to the second point. The second point is uh, the second way we support um, Ukraine in its war against Russia is to arm them and so forth. And the reason for that is we've all been in speeches where a guy goes on and on. Right. And then he says, and and you think he's going to conclude? And he says, and now for my second point, you know, and everyone <laughs> groans. You're, you're trying to give people kind of a roadmap of where you are roughly in your speech. Um, and uh, President Bush, you always says, you know, Bubba's got to be able to understand it. You don't talk down to people. You treat them as intelligent, but you organize it so that they know where they are and what you're saying. And that means that um, with the uh, spoken word, you can't put in quite as much information, you know, if you're getting your points across, because you're repeating a lot of your points. In a, a newspaper column, you don't really repeat because that's wasting space. You kind of are in speech re reemphasizing it. Right. So right. they're very different. Um, you know, uh, listening to something, a lot of times people don't have the text in front of them, so they don't know where you are. And, um, you know, if they miss it, they miss something you say, that train has left the station. If, if people read something, they don't quite get it, they can go back to reading it again. They can't do that with the speech. So you, you have to know your audience. And then one thing you kind of alluded to that a lot of good writers don't get um, for a speech to be um, successful, it has to reflect the speaker. You know, it has to be consonant with right, that person. Right. George Bush would give different speeches from Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan and John Kennedy, you know, all different, all successful in one way, but they have very different styles and it has to be, consistent with them one of the problems uh i had the speechwriters um section is that you know i had about six speechwriters all talented people and they want to show off kind of what they can do 
but the president doesn't want them. If he has two terms, he's probably going to have about 20 something speechwriters all throughout, you know, that after some leave and some new ones come, what he wants is continuity. He wants them all to sound the same like right. him. So it kind of involves stifling yourself and, and trying to find the president's words. I found personally that the younger people were better at that because they hadn't become hardened to their own style yet. Hmm. And they were more amenable uh, to hearing the president's style and trying to um, capture that rather than falling into their own style. And their own style might be fine. It might even be better, but it's not the it's not the president. It's not the person who's speaking it. So there's a lot of different factors that go in. Now, another difference with President Bush, some presidents don't go over speeches. You know, I don't think his father uh, did that from the speechwriters I've talked to. Uh, president Bush went through and edited his speeches with us and um, was very, very involved. So by the time he gave it, um, he was really comfortable with it, and it was his. Um, and I think that's important for a president because that's one of the most common ways you communicate with the world, right? You know what your administration is about. Well, in every word that you know the the world does move, uh, markets right. move, uh, troops move. Um, the, the the significance of a word or the nuanced way that it's. Uh, that it's delivered. That's interesting. The difference between the father and the son, just very briefly in a generic way, um, or unless you have a specific example, what is the process? A president has a, has a big speech coming up. Does he call you in and say, Hey, Bill, bring right. a couple guys. Um, how, how does this, how does that work? Well, I'll tell you how it worked the Bush white house. Um, one of the good descriptions of that is in Peggy Noonan's book. Um, she applies the modern White House process to the Gettysburg Address, and the results are disastrous. So, <laughs> you know, most people think you probably write a speech and then mostly it's over, except for it's tweaking. Um, not at all. In the modern process, you get the topic and the venue, you know, so forth. And um, then the people in the government that are responsible for that policy. So if it's Ukraine policy, State Department, maybe Pentagon, um, if it's domestic policy, you know, if it's like taxes, you know, uh, right. OMB, all sorts of things. OMB, Office of Management Budget, it has its hands in everything because everything has a price tag. So um, I learned how powerful they yeah, were. They really uh, are during speech writing. So they tell you what the policy is, and then you write down a draft uh, of you know what you think is the speech. And what I did, I was assigned the speech to different people, and they would write a draft, and that would be only about twenty five percent of the work. Then. Uh, the top three people in speech writing, myself, Mark Thiessen, and Chris Michelle, would go through it and we'd edit it, would read it aloud. Because remember, speech is a spoken word and would read it aloud, you know, uh, pay attention to the applause lines and everything and uh, bang it into shape. 
And then we send it to the staff secretary who circulates it to the people who have some authority over the speech. Like I mentioned, if it's foreign policy, State Department, NSC, they're going to have a lot of say in it. Um, if it's education, the education department, all sure. sorts of things. So it goes out. It can go out to as few as 20 people. Some people always get it like chief of staff. Um, they always get it and they send back their comments that were written on the speech, you know, like someone grading a paper of what they wanted. And it comes back to the speechwriters. That's called staffing. You send it out for staffing and it comes back and we have to decide which of these changes right. you have, you have to take, uh, which of them we're not going to take, um, which of them we have to find different words for and so forth. And sometimes there's contradictions. You know, one cabinet member wants this and one wants that. After we've incorporated all their stuff, and Peggy Noonan gives a great example with the Gettysburg Address, how like four score and seven years ago, you know, in staffing, someone would circle that and say, archaic, why are we using that? Right. Then in the part when he says the world will little note nor long remember, someone circles that says, then why are we giving the speech if no one will remember? These are very <laughs> typical um, comments. And some people offer bad jokes they want to put in or really <laughs> awkward wording. So we try to iron out the kinks. Uh, take as much as constructive. And then it goes to the president. And um, that was really good for the speechwriters because even if the president hates it, he's the authority from now on. You know, we don't have to worry, gee, are we saying no to the defense secretary? All we have to do is please the president. And uh, he goes over it with us. Uh, you know, if he hates it, he'll go over it with us several times. Um, one of the good examples was the surge speech announcing the surge in Iraq. Right. Um, you know, I was, uh, I was there with, uh, Chris Michelle and that was an operational disaster because we, it was postponed a few times and it was going on when there were bombs, you know, if you remember all these people getting killed in Iraq, suicide bombs, it looked like Baghdad was falling. Um, and so um, we were going to announce the surge. And with President Bush, one thing he wanted up high was like uh, a nut graph explaining, you know, the core of the speech, what it was. And then the rest would follow. So we couldn't do that because we had some restrictions. Basically, the president was um, substituting a counterinsurgency policy for the existing policy, which was yeah. hunt them down and so forth. But we weren't allowed to use counterinsurgency as a word because for classic counterinsurgency, requires a 10 to 1 advantage and we didn't have the troops for a 10 to 1 advantage um general petraeus argued that the iraqi police um made up the difference but we weren't allowed <laughs> to use it so when you're not allowed to use the key word 
it's like having a red tie and trying to to um, explain that to someone else without using the word red. You know, it becomes <laughs> a little incoherent. So one morning, one Saturday at like 6 a.m., we were in the Oval Office after three weeks working on this draft. We would have to tear it up so many times because new developments came in. Everyone was telling us what they wanted to say. Right. And so uh, after we finally went through and had a draft, uh, President Bush called a meeting at 6 a.m., National security people are there. Uh, I think Condi Rice is there. Um, all sorts of people are in the Oval. And they give it to the president. And he says, he, he reads it. He hasn't read it before. He's reading it at the desk. And he says, page one is awful. <laughs> but it is not, it isn't the disaster that page two is <laughs> as only president so, bush can convey yeah. so yes. then all these people who wanted to be part of the speech <laughs> and were telling us what to say they all headed for the tall grass you know and just left us hanging there <laughs> so i went back with uh, chris and i said look if we're gonna get in trouble let's at least get in trouble for doing what we think is right not what other people tell us right and we wrote it the way the president wanted to the problem was th that missing nut graph and so rather than try to find awkward ways around it we just cut it so the next morning sunday we were back in the office at six and remember this has been preceded by like a month of 13 hour work days right this thing. Yeah. we're exhausted we're in it and as the staff secretary is handing President Bush's speech, he's sitting at his desk in the Oval. I said, Mr. President, you especially hated page two yesterday. We took that out. So when you see page two, if you think of it as page three, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it will go down a lot better. And it gave me, it gave me a funny look. And basically, it was okay after that, just a few tweaks and so forth. So it was, um, it was certainly a learning process. Well, it, it, listen, you're um, what a pivotal role, and I do think a lot of people. I, I find this too. Like you know, I served in Congress what eight and a half years, and um, people say, "Oh, I want to, I want to be in Congress." And I, young people, and I'll say, "Well, look, the most important thing you can do there is." Uh, not get involved in politics. Go out, do something else. Then you have something to contribute. And so much like you told mm -hmm. us kind of earlier here, if you set out to do just the speech writing, I, I guess there are a few people that have had success doing that, but there are so few jobs in that um, that are right. consequential, right? Um, the I think the reason uh, a, a Mr. Murdoch or a, a President Bush is is attracted to somebody like it's because you're just a flat out good writer, and you know I find you as a person who comes in with a smile on their face and of good humor, but has a talent to back it up. And the experience of writing that's what that's what ultimately attracts people to saying, "Hey, we want Bill McGurn on this on this project." Well, that could be when I went to the White House. I didn't go because I thought I would be consequential. I went um, because I I thought I owed it to uh, President Bush and my country. 
even if it wasn't consequential, that you, I would be, you know, like a private, um, my little role in uh, something for the nation, especially since I haven't served in the military and I hadn't had other opportunities. And I thought, yeah, how do I tell my children that when I was asked to make a teensy sacrifice compared to, you know, great sacrifices that other people made, you know, I decided I wouldn't do it. So, uh, and it was great. Uh, let me say it was great for my kids. I have three girls. They love President Bush. He's been great to them. It was such an experience for them. You know, my youngest, we had just brought back from China six months before. So six months or, or a couple of months after, um, you know, we got her in China, she's sitting on the lap of the president of the United States. That's amazing. Um, so that gave me great satisfaction. Well, you, you, your impact and the, and the word choices that you made impact the world in, in ways we will, we will never know. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back right after this. Bill, you've had an amazing career, um, but in order to kind of get you know to know you a little bit better, I have some rapid questions I have to ask sure. you. And I I don't care sure. how many speeches you've written or how many how many uh, <laughs> you know trips around the world you've taken. I don't know that you're properly prepared for this, but I'd like to give it a go. You ready? <laughs> yes. All right. What was the first concert you attended? First concert, I think, it was the Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, that's pretty legitimate. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty good. Uh, what was your high school mascot? Golden Knights. Golden, because there were obviously a lot of knights roaming around in right. New Jersey at, right. at that time. We yes. weren't very original. Yeah, well, the Golden Knights as opposed to the <laughs> Silver Knights. I th I think that's right. yeah, that makes it that makes a lot of a lot of sense. What was your very first job? I you know, other than mom and dad saying, "Hey." Bill, take out the garbage. I mean, like where you had to go actually and have a different boss than mom and dad. Well, first job as a kid was delivering newspapers, you know, uh, six days a week, including Sunday morning. What time were you waking up on that on that deal? Uh, it was about 6 a.m. for the Sunday. The, the um, daily papers were in the afternoon. So um, I did them after school. And then the first job after that, I worked in um, the local AMP for a couple of years. Oh, that's good. That's good. Uh, life's most embarrassing moment. I should have my kids here. My kids <laughs> would say it's when I appear in public and haven't cleared my dress with them. Um, um, <laughs> most embarrassing. I'm sure there's been some, but I can't. Um, yeah, for them it's along that line, um, I used to have a Vespa. Can you, you know, a little uh -huh. scooter? And when they were really young, they thought it was so fun. Get on the back, hold on to dad, go for a ride. But then I realized that, you know, they lived close enough to walk to school, but every once in a while I'd come and pick right. them up. But then there, well, all of a sudden one day there was an age where that wasn't so cool anymore. <laughs> and they were so right. embarrassed. I, I was. Which made me want to do it all the more. Yeah, that's kind of the same with me. 
I think my kids say the embarrassing thing is that I don't seem capable of embarrassment when I appear <laughs> in odd clothes and I'm attached to, and uh, they're mortified by it. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's but, something oddly satisfying about embarrassing your kids. And the yes, older I is. get, the older it's, I get, the more I kind of yes. enjoy that. <laughs> it's so pleasant. Um, I don't know where, where that evil side of embarrassing your kids comes from, but I, I really do enjoy it. All right, let's move on. If you could invite one person over to have dinner, say, hey, uh, family, uh, you know, we got a special treat tonight. Now, dead or alive, any person you could pick, who would you want to come have break bread and spend some time and have a conversation with? I think Lincoln. He strikes me as so melancholy, but so prophetic and everything, and, and such a, a president with such burdens um, uh, I think it would have to be Lincoln. Yeah, between him and George Washington, I I mm-hmm. I, I think they had the the bi- biggest tasks on their plate in a nation right. in a nation that wasn't so certain. You know, we weren't quite so certain right. the next day it was going to be here. And um, right that I I I'm in that camp as well. Uh, unique talent. Plus, he he had a sense of humor. Oh Army? yeah, he it sets a humor. He had uh, and he was a great orator too. I mean, the guy could right. speak. So, um Right. Uh a little known fact, you know, I was the chairman of the oversight committee, but back in the day it was known under a different name, but this t- the two years he served in Congress, he was on that committee, which I thought was pretty interesting. Oh, really? Yes, yes. No, that I was his committee. That. Um all right, right. Uh unique talent about Bill McGurn that nobody knows about. Well, I don't know how unique it is, and I rarely exercise it anymore, but I um, do play the guitar, and I know, and I have to say, having three daughters and a lot of road trips, I know more Taylor Swift lyrics than is decent <laughs> for a 63-year-old man to know. I, I got to tell you, as a, I have a daughter who's now in her early 20s, but she grew up listening, loving, adoring, and and still does Taylor Swift. So I, I can right. beat you there because I think I probably know more songs, more lyrics, and can recognize them. <laughs> but I will also add that I have been to a Taylor Swift concert. Now, I went oh. with my daughter. I didn't go by myself. I'm not that creepy. But uh, I don't know if you've been to a Taylor Swift concert, but that, that takes I, you to a whole new realm. Yeah, sort of halfway. Uh, we got my daughter two tickets for a concert in Philly and my wife and I drove her down with the friend and we stayed in the parking lot while she went in for the concert. I, there are so few people there um, with XY chromosomes. Um, I mean, <laughs> women and girls of all ages and almost no men at all or boys anywhere to see the only men i saw were like security guards well uh and being in the concert we were sitting in the upper (laughs) bowl my daughter had made a sign and after like waving it for a while i finally said to our daughter um you know i think taylor has seen the sign now and she's oh okay okay and then put the sign away but there were a spattering of other um dads out there and i just kind of give them a look and they'd give me a look like yep yeah all right we're just uh 
This is interesting, yeah. being good dads. <laughs> uh, but that what an experience. This is what you do. Yeah, this is what you do. And, you know, I'm so glad that I did. Because I actually had a lot of fun because she just right. absolutely loves it. Um, all right, just right. a couple more quick questions. Uh, pineapple on pizza, yes or no? I haven't had it, but I like pineapple, so I think I would like it. Uh, Ill-informed there, Bill. We're, we'll work on you on that <laughs> one because – Wet fruit should not be on pizza, but that's well established, <laughs> and and uh, I'm glad you haven't had it. That says a lot about you. That's right. that's good. <laughs> um, what is the other thing for Bill McGurn? Like through the years, if you want to get out, clear your head, just relax, think about nothing, or or think about something other than the the high powered politics and stuff that you're covering and writing and everything else. If you wanted to kind of escape from the world, what is that other thing? Is it playing the guitar or what? what is the other thing for, for you? Uh, it used to be. Um, I used to do a lot. I know a lot of, I spent a year in Ireland. So I know like all the Irish folk songs. Um, I know that. But all the things that I, I find relaxing, um, my wife and children find irritating. So, um, uh, and one thing I do like, uh, is old movies. And so, you know, if I ever put one on that I like, I hear, ew, black and white. Yeah. And I've made my youngest daughter watch some old classics with me. Yeah. You know, for example, um, so I went to Notre Dame and so did my middle daughter. And my oldest went to St. Mary's, the girls' school. But they had never seen Newt Rockney All-American. Right. Even mm-hmm. though they got they, they knew references to him. So I made them watch and I made my youngest daughter watch about 10 movies, old movies. And she says, I hate when you pick a movie because I know as soon as I like a guy, he's going to die in the end. And th- actually, that's quite true in most of the movies I picked. So I made her watch Newt Rockney and she had never seen the young Ronald Reagan. Oh, you know, yeah. she said, who's that guy? He's pretty cute. And yeah. I said, well, he, he was a former president. So I don't know if you know the movie, but of course he dies and that becomes the source of Rockney's win one for the Gipper. And so then when Rockney has deathbed scene, I mean, uh, the Gipper has his deathbed scene. She starts kicking her legs. She's lying on the couch. She said, I knew it. I knew he was going to die because I liked him. And I had to say, don't get too attached to Newt either. I don't think he makes it out of the final <laughs> reel of the film. You know, it's one of the best things my dad too, because I dad did for uh, me and my brother. I, I, you'd have to drag me into these old movies, but one summer in Scottsdale, Arizona, the Scottsdale Library was having this series of movies, and he, my dad bought like the ten pack. Which meant every, I think it right. was Saturday morning in the summer, we went and saw one of these old films. And I'm like, oh my gosh, rolling my eyes, just dreading this. But that's where I saw Psycho and North by Northwest and, and movies right. that I like really, like North by Northwest, I think is one of the better movies I've ever seen. And I love that show. Would have never happened if my dad didn't drag me kicking right. and screaming to it. So good for you. Um, all right. Last question, Bill. Uh, best advice you ever got? I'm not sure exactly specifically. I mean, the best advice uh, has always come from my father, um, who has, you know, just always said, don't be afraid. Um, 
to stand for what's right, even if you're um, all alone. And, uh, you know, he was like that. He is like that. Um, you know, the Marine motto is Semper Fidelis. And, um, you know, he kind of raised us all as Marines, even though none of us enlisted voluntarily. Right. Um, so I think that's the best thing, um, that don't be afraid to be alone if you're, if you're standing up for a principle. No, look, that that's great advice. You've had an amazing, amazing career. Um, just the work, the body of work that you've had through the years, uh, just absolutely love it. And very kind of you to kind of share your story, your background and perspective on this Jason in the house podcast. Really do appreciate it, Bill. Yeah, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. All right. I can't thank uh, Bill enough for his time and, and, uh, what a storied history. Uh, there's still a lot more to come from Bill McGurn, I'm sure. And just a gem of a person and, and what he's done and, the effect that he's had on the nation behind the scenes is is truly remarkable. So uh, really interesting discussion. And I, I thank Bill for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Jason in the House podcast. I need you to, to rate it, subscribe to it. Uh, that would be really helpful. If you can do that, uh, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, you also can go over to foxnewspodcasts.com. There's other great podcasts out there from some really talented people. And I think you might enjoy them. But make sure you join us again next week. We'll have a very interesting phone-a-friend guest. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and this has been Jason in the House. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.